Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. On an earlier episode of this show, the Turkish novelist Orhan Pamuk said something that I've never forgotten. He said that writing programs shouldn't teach about plots or characters or how to structure a story. Instead, they should teach writers to manage their own psychology, like to be the captains of their own creative ship across the bumpy waters of emotion and energy and hope and despair. This kind of self-management, he suggested, is the main difference between people who keep making art and people who don't. My guest today is Jessica Abel. She's an accomplished artist herself, a graphic novelist who did a kind of graphic docu-novel called Out on the Wire about how some of the greatest radio shows and podcasts are made, including Snap Judgment, Radiolab, and This American Life. In the course of figuring out how to steer her own creative ship, she's also put a lot of thought into how to help others do the same. Her most recent book, Growing Gills, offers creatives a step-by-step process for figuring out what they want to make, and how to balance that with the rest of their lives. Welcome to Think Again, Jessica. Thanks a lot. First of all, did you want to be a cartoonist in high school? It took me a while to figure out that I wanted to be a cartoonist. I didn't collect comics myself until I was in high school and had my own job and could buy them myself. Right. Whenever somebody would give me one, I would be really excited about it and just like rip through it. But it wasn't the kind of thing you could check out from the library at the time. And then I got a job as a cashier in a hardware store and got money. And around the corner from the hardware store was a big convenience store called the White Hen Pantry. And they had actually an enormous rack of comics, regular comics. And this is in the mid late 80s, which is also a really pivotal moment in the development of comics as an adult medium. Um, Frank Miller's run of Daredevil, um, you know, various kinds of things that are now thought of as being benchmarks of quality in superhero comics. I'm not currently that interested in superhero comics, but I did read them at the time. And I definitely was lucky to find some really good ones. There were no female artists that I was aware of in that first wave. Who did I there miss? There were very few. Yeah. I mean, I was reading ElfQuest and um, oh, Wendy, yeah, yeah, Wendy Peeney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wendy Peeney is one of the you know lights of that era for sure. sure. But in superhero comics proper, there were some, but very few. Right. Um, and certainly not the big name people. But that didn't, that wasn't really, I mean, I just was attracted to the narrative form and but yeah, so it was 86. Um, I graduated from high school in 87. So like 86, 87 is when Mouse came out. Okay. Um, and yep. the Watchmen collection. I hadn't read the issues, but I got it when it was a collection. For the audience, uh, if you don't know, and probably you do, but Mouse is Art Spiegelman's amazing, masterful comic about the a Holocaust survivor, I guess. His, his father. His father, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a memoir, a nonfiction comic, and it was one of the first nonfiction comics out there anywhere. And it's just a really, really, really well done, masterful work. And was one of the first things that really outside that either comedy or heroic tradition of comics that I encountered. And it was also the starting point for a wave of articles in the newspapers, Biff Bang Pow, comics aren't just for kids anymore. (laughs) But so is that and Watchmen and Dark Knight were all books that came out in the same year. So Dark Knight, um, which is the Batman rethinking by Frank Miller and Watchmen by Alan Moore, which is a very, very complex and highly conceptually thinky superhero comic Psychologically deep. So I don't know. I mean, none of those things made me want to be a cartoonist, but I was really interested in comics. And I think that that is a prerequisite for wanting to commit your life to comics is you have to be a really committed reader of comics. Could you always draw? Were you a kid who just like, you just had, oh, they, everyone said, oh my God, what a great you know, um, visual I'm, talent. I, I wouldn't call myself a prodigy, but I've had a 
a knack for it. I was not one of those people where people would just like sit around watching me draw or something like sure. that. I don't, I didn't then and never have been somebody who draws all the time. Okay. But it's something that I've enjoyed and had kind of a knack for for a long time. So what happened is basically I went to college. And when I went to college, I went to this um, small, I went to Carleton College my first year, which is in Northfield, Minnesota, outside Minneapolis, a tiny town. From where? Where were you? I was in Evanston. Evanston, Illinois. Illinois. Outside okay. Chicago, yeah. Okay. So, so metropolis a, to yeah, yeah. tiny town. And I was like a punk rock kid and just immediately enraged against like everything about <laughs> this school and town. I mean, it's a lovely town. It's a really great school. It just was not for me at when all. You're, when you're a punk rock kid, it's actually really good to be in a boring, conservative place because then you have something to really rage against. I, I mean, transferred after <laughs> one year. But, I mean, nothing against Carlton. Again, like it's a wonderful place, actually, really. I, I might have been better off if had I stayed, but I just couldn't stand it. So, um, But there was one record store in town that only closed really recently, I found out. I think it was called Fine Groove. Anyway, in this, I would buy vinyl records, even though I didn't have a turntable, because I was sure that I was going to have one in the future and like be the person who has. <laughs> I didn't buy CDs. I didn't buy, you know, cassettes. I bought vinyl. So I'd go in Wait, there. I'm looking sorry, for, I have to interject. So you were like preparing for a future hip identity that you knew you were going to yeah, have. Yeah, I was going to be. Yes, I wasn't going to start stocking up and spending my precious money on stuff that was just garbage, like you know, CDs. Right. So anyway. I would go into the store and like look through their vinyl and stuff, and they had a, a small rack of really good art comics. They didn't carry the sort of superhero books that I'd been reading before, and I didn't really care. Like it didn't miss them that much. Right. But they did have Read Yourself Raw, which is the collection yep. of art comics that Art Spiegelman put together. Um, they had stuff like Sinner by Munoz and Sampaio, which are um, you know really great Argentinian cartoonists. So it was it was a reprint that was coming out from Fanographics at the time. Challenging stuff, stuff where I would look at it on the rack, kind of like out of the side of my eye, and like not really want to touch it because I was like, <laughs> "Am I going to like that? It looks expensive and scary." And eventually bought all those things there. But you know, it took me a while to kind of feel like I could. You know, it's like the you fear the judgment of the clerk behind the counter. You know, are you cool enough to buy these things? Right. But what I did find there and bought early on was Love and Rockets by Hernandez Brothers. I was going to mention them. Yeah. yeah. And that was really the pivotal point for me in terms of wanting to become a cartoonist because Jaime Hernandez in, in particular is writing a cycle of stories, which he's actually still working on. And it's absolutely incredible for anybody who's interested in getting started in graphic novels. This is not beginner stuff, but, you know, there are hundreds of pages of this sort of novelistic cycle of stories centering on uh, Maggie Chascarilla, who's a Mexican-American woman in L.A., okay. and at the time, a total punk rocker, right? So she comes out of the punk rock history. She's a few years older than me and living a life that just looked like perfect. So cool. Right. So cool. <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, had this crushes on the same boys she did who were <laughs> pictures on the page. I just wanted to be in it. And that's what made me want to start. And I, I, I oversimplified in, ret in retrospect because there are little indications that I was thinking about it beforehand. But like that was when I really started doing more of it. Because basically I just wanted there to be more like that in the world. I wanted that kind of storytelling to be out there. This cycle that he's working on, this is because I actually now want to go read it. Is, is he publishing that in individual comics or is it like an ongoing series of graphic novels? Well, it's so interesting it? because Love and Rockets is actually a partnership between two brothers. Oh, it's still Love and Rockets. It's within still Love, Love and Rockets, Rockets, but then okay. it's been reprinted in books. Okay. So you don't have to buy the individual issues to get it. But basically they come from the Hernandez brothers. And originally it was three of the brothers, but usually Mario, he's only done a few things, but okay. it's Gilbert and Jaime and mostly. And they have two really separate kind of approaches and worldviews and sets of characters and whatever. And they would each publish stories in 
issues of this comic. So it was sort of a mini anthology every time. And this is coming from an era when everything was published in magazine format, you know, in comic book floppy format. And there were no books of this stuff, right. you know. And eventually, people started publishing collections, and now there are these deluxe, wonderful, hardback, you know, beautifully done books. That right. at the time, that was never, like, a thing. But they still make the magazines. They, they're one of the few floppy comics that still happen. And then after they publish them in the magazine they format, them. they bind them up individually. So you don't, they're not in one book. You'll have Gilbert's books and Jaime's books separately. Okay. And so it's actually quite possible to read Jaime's oeuvre completely. Like you get a, the book Locas, which is the first book, is like 500 pages long. Oh, wow. Huge thing. And they wow. probably have published versions that are, you know, shorter chunks. So the psycho about this woman, tell me her name again. Maggie Chascarillo. Yeah, that's, Chascarillo. With, that's just within his collection ongoing. Maggie's just kind of the central character around everything, around, around which everything yeah, turns. Yeah. And there's plenty of other characters who there are sidelines talking about this character or that character. You go off and hang out with this person for a while, with Hopi especially, but also with Ray or other characters who are central to her storyline. I see. Or like who intersect with her storyline, but they have their own lives and you'll sometimes spend whole arcs with them. Spin-offs, as it were, in, in, a, in a sense. Of, I mean, but she, it's always tied together. I mean, he's just, it's operatic. I think this kind of moves us into the the second part here of what I want to talk about, which is, you know, this work that you're doing through Growing Gills. And by the way, I'm going to say this isn't like an advertorial or anything, but I totally love the work that Jessica does I don't want to call it self-help. What are you calling it for artists? Like, what what are you what are you calling it? Well, it's. I don't want to say self-help only because there's so much out yeah. there that's so gimmicky and schlocky. And I was just explaining what I was what I do last night to a friend, somebody I don't know super well, but who was coming to stay with us um, last night, and I was having a conversation with him, and he's somebody who's a well-known illustrator and just published a a book of graphic narrative, and he'd been struggling to create this personal work for years and years and years. And when I explained, he's done it. I mean, he did it without me, without my help. <laughs> but um, when I explained what I did, he's like, oh, I needed you. And so basically what I was saying is that I was saying to him, you're the perfect person I would want to work with because he's somebody who's, you know, really accomplished, has been working for years, has a very developed sense of the stories he wants to tell, the um, visual right. style he works in, all these other things. And yet he was not able to figure out how to fit in this kind of life-expanding, you know, future-building project for ages. You know, it took so long for him to figure out how to balance that with his paid work that's also really important to him. And I also work with people who are doing completely non-creative work for their day job work and okay. want to fit things in, right. like make a novel, whatever. Basically, my focus is trying to help people who are committed and highly creative and have ideas that they want to express, help them figure out how to make that part of their life. Because the problem is, you know, not all creative people, but maybe a lot of creative people are just not very good managers of their own thing. I mean, I guess there are just different types that you encounter, but I mean, speaking for myself, you have a million ideas, you really enjoy making the work, but it's as if you need an assistant that you simply can't afford, uh, not an assistant, like an agent or a manager or something to come and say, hey, 
you really need to focus on this project. And I got this meeting with these people in LA and like people have trouble doing that for themselves. Yeah. And I always make as clear as I can that those are two different jobs and people often conflate the two and think that if you do a lot of creative work, that the business part's going to happen somehow without you doing anything. And one of the biggest things I do is help people clarify what their actual goals are. Do they want to make the work or do they want to make the work and then also sell the work and make a living from it? Because right. those are completely different goals. Related, you know, they're tied together. I mean, I think they're, the thing is for me, like they're deeply tied together because if you don't, if you're not going to make a living or even a decent amount of money from your work, your life is going to just expand to fill those spaces. I mean, especially if you have children, if you know, like what you do for your job, that's like your whole week. It's not like you can't have a hobby, but you know, we're talking about not a lot of time on the side. Yeah, but you, I mean, you have to then, if you want to make it your living, then you have to really be thinking about carving out not just the time for the project itself, but for the meta project of building a business around that project. Right. That is a huge ask if in the life of somebody who has children and a life and all this other stuff. And that can happen at a much slower pace by spreading it out over more time. Right. Um, but if it's really a priority, you need to know that and you need to design your life around it. And if it's not a priority, if the priority is just making the thing and getting it out, but not making that the main focal point of it, you can really do it very differently. I'm pretty sure your answer to this is going to be no. But do you think that there are people who what they ought to do is get themselves to the point where they have some sort of administrative support, where they they're the talent and they have, you know, somebody in their corner because managing that crazy apparatus is just not them. You're speaking for yourself, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm. This is for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody's hopeless, but I do think that many people make the decision unconsciously that they're just not going to do that stuff, and that's why there's this. And by that stuff, we mean like building a marketing list. We mean yeah, just keeping track of right. all your projects. And you know, goals. I was up till I was. I mean, I was working last night after dinner to finish my newsletter to send it out. And I'm thinking like, I don't want to be doing this now. I want to have this newsletter sort of, but do I want to have it enough to be working on it until 1030 at night? That's a question, right? Right, um, right. Well, and especially when like part of your concern is also authenticity and an authentic kind of human relationship with your fans and your audience. Like if you find yourself inside this kind of grand machine that you've created where the communication is obligatory. Like, I don't know, maybe there's no way around that, but it feels like that's not the most fun voice from which to have to communicate. One of the many metaphors that I use, this one came from Ira Glass when I was working on Out on the Wire, is the idea of the Kyber Pass. So um, I have two kind of ideas that came out of working on Out on the Wire having to do with the difficulty of the creative process. And one is called um, The Dark Forest, and that Mm -hmm. comes from Jad Abumrad. And that's the moment when you're immersed in a huge project and all kinds of things have happened already and you have all this material and all these ideas, but you feel completely unable to master these things and you're sort of at the bottom of the pit of despair. That's in the and actual like creating itself, not necessarily the marketing or whatever. No, no, no. This is a, well, yeah, it yeah. could be in the marketing too because yeah. the marketing is also a creative project okay. in a way. And that's something that I, I think it's important for creatives to embrace. But just in terms of the creative creative process in general, like we all go through this. Slough of despond or whatever. The trough, yeah, well, like, you know, yeah. you start off feeling like <laughs> this is an amazing project. I'm so excited. And then 
you start to think this is really hard and then you somehow get, you get to the, you start keep working on it, you get to the bottom where you're just like, I am not able to do this. I, I am not capable of this. I don't know how this is gonna happen. I don't, I can't feel, I can't feel my way out of this. And really, I always say that the, the dark forest is a good sign because it means that you're trying something that's gonna stretch your abilities and is a little bit too hard for you. Like you're shooting right. a little bit above your pay grade, which was a terrible mixed me- metaphor. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah, like you're yeah. trying a your little, you know. pay grade. Yeah, whatever it is. And if you stick with it and get through that, you will have been making something that will grow you as an artist and be something new in the world. Whereas if you don't try something that's a little bit too hard, it may be fine, but you're, you're not going to change yourself in the process. That's a thing I think that creative people can get confused about. Speaking for this friend of mine, again, <laughs> um, you know, where- You must know him really well. I, he's a really good friend. We've <laughs> known each other forever. Yeah, so I can basically speak for him. But you do the art because of this feeling that you've had from doing the art, which is this, basically it's it's freedom. It's the sense of release from the cage of the kind of boring every ne- everydayness of things. You manage to push through to something, you know, something new. And that's like the taste you get that kind of addicts you at some early age. And so then kind of reconciling that with the more mature demand of will and stick and pushing through that dark forest, I think that can be confusing for people. Definitely. And I would say that it's not just freedom, it's the feeling of your brain clicking on all cylinders, like just totally like fixing things, making problems get solved and like figuring out a route through this interesting problem is just something we right, live right. for as human beings. The success part of that journey, like the, yeah. wow, you know, I got And when it's really it hard, you got to remember the only way forward is up. It's going to get better right. and you're going to start putting things together. So I, I ran this idea past Ira Glass when I was working on the book and said, do you get lost in the dark forest? And he said, yes, there are times when, you know, the project seems unsalvageable and I don't know what I'm doing. But mostly at this point, he is so such a master of what he specifically does. And he also is somebody who's very committed to structuring things all the time. Yes. And constantly restructuring things as he goes. Right. So he has like an outline in his mind and then he rewrites the outline again, or not even in his mind, you know, on paper with his producer. So he doesn't really get lost in the material in the way that he might have when he was younger. But what he does face, and he had this metaphor of the Kyber Pass, and basically, that's this massive slog to the finish. <laughs> you know? Right, right, the, right. The, the hard work of putting it together and making those decisions, even if you know what the decisions are and how you need to make them, actually making those decisions is hard work and kind of exhausting. And there are definitely moments of deep satisfaction when you fix something, when things click together in a certain way. Right. But you really have to hang, hang on to those because there's plenty of other moments where you're just like, I can't believe I have this much more stuff to do still. You have, you know, put one foot in front of the other and make it, you know, make your way through it. Yeah, you sort of, I guess, have to take it on faith at some point in your career. And then later on, you know, as you've done it many, many times, you know that it's worth the struggle. I think that there's a there's one level of just sort of joy in the project that you can access many times through the process. Right. But it's usually short lived. And the, the deeper pleasure and satisfaction that comes from creative work comes from Kyber Pass-like moments where you are, you feel your brain struggling to make sense of something. Right. And then you make it work and you move on to the next thing and you just think, yes, I did it. Like, I know I got that thing. I got it. And I, I, I think there are probably different levels of appetite or, or, or tolerance for that that result in different types of artists. Salman Rushdie 
the first time he was on the show, early on in the show, talked about the difference between novelists and playwrights. And he was saying that novelists are like long distance runners and playwrights are like sprinters. And someone like Ira Glass, I mean, they're working on 30 stories for any given episode of This American Life and they've got a leaderboard. And sometimes if one doesn't work out, you know, they've got other ones that they can go to. So it's built into that process that the Kyber Pass slog is never quite as long as it might be in, say, making Out on the Wire. Right. He actually said that to me because I was asking him various questions about narrative structure and how do you do this, how do you do that, and comparing what I was working on to what he does. And he said, there's just no comparison to this because, you know, I worked on Out on the Wire, worked on writing and revising it for two years and then drawing it for a year. And and that's like full-time work. You know, it's just an enormous, enormous amount to process and kind of put together. And there's there's no individual, like the project of This American Life, you know, writ large is bigger than that. But any individual story is not. I feel like you might look at something like serial as a parallel to the novelistic process mm. because there were so many pieces that had to go into that. Right. And there was so much coordination between chapters, essentially, you know, the different episodes, right. how one thing had to get planted early and then pay off later. And there, too, the Kyber Pass is maybe a a little bit less lonely. For one thing, it's a collaborative process. For another, you get to run around all over the place interviewing people, you know, so there- uh, No, I mean, each art I'm form- I'm not saying it's dismissing it. I'm sure there, 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 there were grueling, grueling moments. Throughout. He was actually in the middle of working on their episode where they did an entire episode at a car dealership. They had eight or something producers there interviewing different people all weekend and they put together one piece. And he's, he was talking about how he had to go through the transcripts and the tape and- pick the right pieces and put them in order. And it was just this process right. of just mechanically, not even mechanically, but thoughtfully pulling these things together. And it, and he, he had been procrastinating about it for <laughs> five minutes or whatever because he knew how hard it was going to be. So I think everybody goes through that. And, you know, when I'm working with people trying to help them make their creative work, they hit these different points at different times, you know, that so to get back to your original notion that maybe some creative people are just not suited for administrative kind of structure or something. Because there's different things, right? There's the part that's administrative in the sense that, like, how do you work it out to make space in your life? And then there's the, are you ready to take on the project of making a living at this? Right. And those are two different questions. And the main thing I focus on really is, how do you fit this into your life? And so people come to me at different points in that, in readiness, shall we say, in that aspect. Some of them already use various kinds of tools to manage their time or whatever, but it's just not working out. And other people just have piles of post-it notes, you know, all over their entire house and don't know what to do with, you know, and just get really stuck all the time. Right. So I can help people in different ways. But, you know, Kyber Pass moments are moments where people get to, they think they're falling out of love with their project. Um, And possibly with the whole, with themselves as an artist. Right. Period. It's (laughs) not necessarily the depressed part in the middle of the dark forest where they think I'm not capable of this, but they're just... They just think like, oh, okay, I don't know if okay. I can get through this. Right. Um, <clears throat> that's why I'm making distinction. Like right, there are parts right. where it's sort of depressing and you just think like, I, I'm incapable of this. I can't get through it. I'm not good enough. And those are moments when you just need to sort of be talked through it by somebody who knows what is going on, you know. Yeah. But then the Kyber Pass part is like, no, I think, you know, if you believe in the end result that you're going for, this is going to be worth it. If you can keep your eye on that thing that you're trying to build, right. this is going to pay off. And so you need to have a sort of dual consciousness of just what you're doing right now, but also know where you're going with it. Everybody working on big projects, I think, hits both of those stages. The people who come to you, what is the single most common problem? If I could sum it up, I would call it magical thinking. Mm. 
And that plays out in lots of different ways in the more granular way of thinking that you can fit all the things in tomorrow right. that you want to do, right. you know, and not really looking at how many hours there are and how many things there are and making smart choices about that. Yeah, I'm going to interject here and say that one of the best things that I've learned from Jessica's work is that looking at the calendar, looking at the week, thinking about what are the things that you want to do and being realistic about how much time they take. We should roll back here and say, like, what am I actually doing? Because we started with the what's growing gills and then said self-help, and then we haven't said what we actually do. Oh, but yeah. Like, so let's, so, so please, go ahead. Okay, so let me see if I can lay this out. So what I do is I run what I'm starting to call a group coaching program and not, I used to call it a course, but it's not really a course. It has to do with everybody working together to work these problems out called the Creative Focus Workshop. And there are different components to that. There's a sort of course-like component where there's a bunch of lessons that drop and people work on those lessons and they talk about them together and I help them work through those lessons. And then there's a, an ongoing kind of coaching component for another six weeks or so after that, um, which is what I'm doing right now with these people. And my book, Growing Gills, comes from blog posts and things I've written about this and especially from the work with students in the Creative Focus Workshop. Okay. So it's self-help. The book is self-help. The program is not self-help because I'm there. <laughs> right, 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 right. So that's right. why it's not group exactly help. self-help, but, you know. Guided group help. Guided group help. There you go. <laughs> or um, but the, 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 um, there are plenty of people who don't join the, the group, obviously, or join the course. And, right. and they do. I mean, I just got a letter yesterday from somebody saying that just growing gills in my email list has been transformational for her. And she's she was staring at a piano in her living room for 12 years or 10 years and then sold it and then wanted it again and bought it back and is finally playing piano because of what she's learned from my book. And I'm just immensely happy and glad that, that I can help with that stuff. And her goal was not necessarily professional piano. No, to learn to play piano. Playing piano, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, she just wanted to learn to play piano. Right. And she just never figured out how to organize herself around that goal and make that happen. This yeah. is your story. You told me your story from when you were uh, a few years ago when you started working on other personal work. Right. That you really faced a moment and you were like, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do this. Yeah, the audience doesn't know anything about this, but I've been working on some creative projects on the side. Yeah, from short stories to a couple of fiction podcast ideas that I'm developing. And so you had to face that moment of thinking like, I have to figure out a way to fit this into my life if I'm going to fit it in. You know, I have a job that I love and I have, you know, a family and all this stuff and I don't want to give those things up, but I want to build this new thing. Right. And it's the exact same moment that this woman faced where she thought, if I'm going to do this, I really have to make time for it and really have to make it happen. Yeah, life's short. You know? yeah. yeah, it yeah. is. And <laughs> also long. That's the thing. We talk about life being short all the time. But also, many people who come to me are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. There's still plenty of years, probably, for most of them. That's something I actually I do. Yeah, I want to kind of broach that because, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed like there's a generational thing in how people think about when they have to start doing X, Y, or Z. I mean, like in my father's generation, it's like, oh, if you didn't publish your first novel by the time you're 20, like forget about it, you know, kind of thing. There's just this idea like, oh, I guess it's just not for you. And we're thinking a little differently about that now, but people do still have these ideas about at what age, by what age they have to have done this. I think we're that. told this stuff. You know, yeah. I don't think that it comes from nowhere. Right. You know, there's this idea of prodigies, this idea that you have to be, you know, good at something by X time or it's not going to be real for you. Right. And and Especially with art, people feel like art is, or any cre kind of creative work, because plenty, plenty of people won't even call themselves artists, even if they are. There's this feeling that if you didn't do it straight off, 
you're not for real, you're a poser, you're not, you're never going to make it, you're never going to be the, you know, it's never going to be real. Like what you produce doesn't count. Just last week on this show, I was talking to Yanis Varoufakis, who's the former finance minister of Greece, and we ended up on the topic of, like his wife is an artist, and we ended up on the topic of artistic passion. And he was like, you know, the art chooses you. If you're, an, if you're a true artist, the art chooses you. And I was thinking like, this is one of these myths that every artist has to deal with, the starving artist, the wunderkind, you know, measuring yourself against these kind of unrealistic expectations. Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to... Uh, yeah, he's amazing. The, and the, the guy, but, was great, I, but I totally disagree with that. Yeah. I think that every human being is a creative person. It's how our brains work. It's how our brains work best. And whether you express that creativity in a novel or you express it through, you know, really great spreadsheets. I have all respect for spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. Right. Like, People who can figure those <laughs> kinds of problems out, that is creativity. You know, I have a student who wants to make comics, but she's also a math professor. And she talks about doing math as the same kind of activity. You know, doing mathematics, higher mathematics is like very much the same kind of activity. Right. And, you know, I don't draw any lines. I have people in my group who do stuff that would not, people from the outside would not qualify as quote unquote creative work because it doesn't stand off in this other area. But I don't care. Look at children. You know, yeah, yeah. look at the way children function and the way that they, I've never met a child who doesn't draw, who doesn't love to draw to some extent. And it dies pretty early for a lot of people. But go back to that. Did you draw as a kid? If you drew as a kid, it's there. Right. And if you want it back, you can have it back. It's in, in you. In some form or other. It's or in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's part of you. I think another myth, and this is related, is the... If I'm not waking up in the morning and, you know, throwing the television out the window yeah. and inspiration. But what's become clearer and clearer to me is that writers will sit down every single day and they'll write however they feel, whatever's going on. I have a friend who was just talking to me about these like writing games that she invents for herself and her students that take the expectation off of yourself to feel that you are just supposed to be vomiting forth this torrent of genius at all times. And, and to bring the play back into it. I mean, the whole, a creative life is a Kyber pass a lot of times. You know, just if yeah. you don't, and if you don't show up, you won't have the inspiration because inspiration comes from within the work. It does not come from the sky. It does not come from anything else. It comes from the work. It comes from doing the work. Right. Which is why I feel like what I do, I feel so satisfied to be able to help people because once they're in it, it generates itself. So to get back to this idea of magical thinking, like right. one of those things, that's one of those things. That's one of the things that people believe that if they're not feeling inspired, it's not real. If they can't just sit down and produce something right off the bat, they're not really artists. Right. If their work isn't discovered and somebody else paying bills, you know, they don't deserve to do this. Right. Um, there's so, and some of those things, many of those things are myths that come from our culture and the way we talk about, you know, the muse or whatever. Yeah. And none of this is meant to say, you know, when I said that anybody can get back to drawing, anybody can get back to being creative and doing art, I really truly believe that. It's not my mission to, there are many people whose mission it is, and I admire those people, but it's not my mission to help people who are completely out of touch with their creativity to get in touch with it. Right, that's not you know, what you're working on. It's not yeah. what I'm working on. Yeah. But I do believe that that is absolutely possible and is a great idea for basically anybody, whatever form that takes. I think it would be a significantly better world if everyone were in that, you know, had some connection to their own inner creativity. Yeah. I think a lot of the like conflict and suffering that we that happens, you know, politically and otherwise is the result of people 
killing that part of themselves. And most of the people who come to me are um, way past that point. They've definitely, they know creativity is a huge deal to them and they want to be making their work. And they're in agony because they see themselves frittering away time and feeling unhappy when they're doing it, feeling unhappy when they're not doing it, thinking about work when they're supposed to, when they're hanging out with their friends and family, thinking about their friends and family when they're doing work, like everything's mixed up. And gain that kind of clarity on that you have control over your time, you have choices to make. And if you don't make those choices, that's what's going to happen. If you do make those choices, you know, it may not look like you imagine. It may not, right. you know, your your life, your, your schedule is not going to suddenly clear out and you have six hours a day to sit down with your laptop in the sun. Right. But um, you can make the work and you can make the time for it. You know, I've worked with people who are, you know, have three small children and a job and they find time to do something moving towards that goal. And they know that they can see that there's a larger rhythm in their life where they're going to have more flexibility in the future and they can hold on to that. And to be clear, this isn't to perpetuate the also pernicious myth of the like person who can have it all. Like you're fitting oh, these things. Quite the contrary. You're fitting these things into logically, pragmatically into the life you have. And also sometimes life just screws with you. Somebody gets sick six months chemotherapy, you know, these things happen as well. So it's not about adding additional pressure to people that like, oh, if only you could get your shit together, you would be doing these things every week. Yeah. I mean, a huge, huge piece of this is self-forgiveness. So not when you get sick and you can't go, you know, you can't do anything for a few days or a week or months. You don't also then beat yourself up over not doing the things that you think you want to do or that you really do want to do because you just you just can't. It's what's just the not point? the time. Yeah, what's right. the point? So what I was going to say about the current students I have right now is one of the big realizations for many of the students in this particular group has been that the secret to getting their creative work done is getting the rest of their life planned and organized. Yeah, you know, you. so you know, I have one student who takes care of kids and is on a school board for a brand new school. So this is kind of like huge time commitment. And she was doing her writing. But every time she was doing it, she was like, yeah, like freaking out about the thing that was coming after, right. you know? So she had to get all of that figured out. And in many cases, that's the case. So this, I talk about this idea of an integrated week, the idea of having, when you look at your calendar, it is a picture of every single thing you do, all the things for your relationships, all the things for your job, all the things to take care of your body, sleeping and eating, right. and your creative work. And they're all in one integrated system. And if you recognize that system, you can take control of it. And that also gives that gives respect to all of these things that we often just kind of shove into this back corner of the mind. Oh, yes, I'll get, you know, I will get to the gym at some point. I will do blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. It's like, no, these are the things I want to do. I want to make sure that I do. You, you know, know, and because it's all, it's in all integrated system, yeah. and, and in one system, you know that if you push on one thing, something else is going to get pushed out of place. I think that insight is the number one insight I can bring to anybody. And it's something you have to get to over and over and over again. Me too, all the time. (laughs) You know, that feeling that somehow I should magically be able to fix all this stuff goes away when you sit down and look at the nitty gritty of what your hours, you know, 168 hours a week, you know, what fits. Right. And that really helps with the self-forgiveness piece because 
So some of my students were saying that what they really, it really helped them to actually write sick on their calendar, like be, <laughs> be sick, you know? So it's like, that was their job. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> <laughs> convalesce. Yeah, whatever, whatever. convalesce yeah. or like, you know, <laughs> cough a lot, whatever, like put it on your calendar. So then that's it's funny. like, that's my actual role today is to be sick. So in the second half of the show, which I think we should get to now, we will see a couple of surprise clips from Big Think's interview archives that were chosen by the video production team. I have not seen them. Jessica has not seen them. We don't know what they're about. We could be trying to solve the North Korean missile crisis. You know, we'll, we'll see. I'll do my best. All right. Okay, so this first one is softball. This is Jad Abumrad, who you know personally. Jad Abumrad, for the listeners, if you don't know, but you maybe probably know, he created and hosts Radiolab uh, with Robert Krolwich. And this video is called Digital Shamanism, Radiolab's Old-Fashioned New Fangled Storytelling Magic. I do feel like the kind of storytelling that I do um, is somehow uh, independent of the, of, the, of the technology that delivers it. Um, I mean, I do happen to work on the radio, and I'm a guy who likes sound, so in that sense, this technology does suit me. Uh, but I feel like storytellers are like, um, they're kind of like shamans in a way, uh, and that your job as a, as a storyteller is to kind of create a circle of connection um, that might as well be thousands of years ago around a campfire in some sense. Like your job is to induce a kind of dream state between people, which is, I think, where the stories live. The good stories are in a kind of collective dream state. Uh, and so um, even though Radiolab uses millions of layers and weird noises that are kind of interlapping and crazy sort of like counterpoint, I do feel like in some sense we're doing something that's very old. It's ancient. Um, it just so happens that my voice contains all the bleeps and the bloops and the strange things that this technology enables. Um, and I, I do feel like that's a crutch sometimes, I really do. I mean, there's something amazing about a person getting on stage, like almost naked, and you know, in front of an audience, and just with their voice inducing that dream state. Um, something magical about that. Uh, for me, someone who doesn't quite feel comfortable doing that, getting on stage, this technology allows me to have that voice. You know, there's some crazy things you can do now, uh, crazy synthesis techniques, um, where you can, you can use any source to create these big long drones and soundscapes. Um, and I use that stuff all the time. You know, what I'll do, one of my favorite little things uh, to do in scoring the show is to take a bit of someone's voice that was just in the segment and maybe just like the ch on a, on a, on a syllable. And using various things, you can sort of almost grab it with two hands and stretch it and make it a mile long and create these like strange kind of uh, landscapes um, that are weirdly familiar. They, they sound weirdly like the voice still. And so I love playing with that kind of stuff. And there's all kinds of new technology within sound creation. Um, and I, every single one of it, I, t I use it all. I thought it was interesting that he was, I felt like this clip, he was going in two different directions. Okay. You know, that in one sense, he's talking about the core principles of storytelling and um, human connection via right. the storytelling medium. 
and how Radiolab is a part of that. And he feels like the sound and sense is sort of a crutch for him. You know, using the complicated soundscapes that they create is is a bit of a crutch. And then on the other hand, he's talking about how great the sound is. Right. <laughs> and so he's going right, off right, and right. you know, he loves he, it. He, he loves it. He would like to have his cake and eat it too. Yes. Well, he's <laughs> he's a composer and and it shows, you know, he's a trained composer. So that's... Wait, I, I thought I took, I got that same uh, discrepancy in the way it like manifested for me was the... On the one hand, considering the audience's experience, and on the other hand, considering the artist's experience, right? And those two things aren't always the same thing. That That is to say, Jad is sitting there in his radio lab, you know, tripping out on expanding some syllable, right? And the final effect that it has in the story, I mean, I guess they have to come back to that in the end. They actually have to listen to the story and be like, okay, this noise is just weird or it works. But in the moment of stretching that thing out there, he's being Jad, the composer who wants to play with sound. Yes. And he's, I know that they use sound very intentionally to bolster the storytelling and he would never do something like that that he didn't feel like created a, an emotional level to the story okay. that you can't get just. And so he's talking about it like it's two different things. And basically what I'm saying is that's not how Radiolab plays it. I mean, they yeah, right. they look at it as one thing. And in some ways, I thought I feel like Radiolab is kind of the big budget movie of the podcast world, you know, where they spend hours on every second of every piece that they create. Right. I've seen it's, I've seen their like. Yeah. Sessions in Pro Tools. I mean, they're insane. Like there's, they're insane. you know, 80 billion tracks. And they edit, <laughs> they edit the audio so finely. I sat in on a training session for Radiolab producers run by Dylan Keefe, who I think is still their lead sort of technical producer. Maybe, I don't know. He worked on, on the media for years and other places. And he was explaining how to make edits between pieces of tape absolutely seamless. Seamless. And talking about the different qualities of silence and breaths between different sounds, different initial sounds of the voice. So that the the way a breath sounds leading into an S is different from an A. <laughs> and so you have to pick the right pause and the right breath because it has a different pitch to it in order to cut it in there. And they cut everything so that it's absolutely impossible to tell that it's been so cut. So for the listeners who might be confused technically, what you're saying is you're, they're talking about inserting... So they take a paragraph, right? Uh, so I'm talking like this and I'm stopping in the middle. My sentences are... I'm pausing. It's cut off. I'm, I'm being confusing. So what they would do is they would cut out not all of the pauses, but all of the confusing parts. They'd rearrange everything I just said into one sentence. I see. As if you had said it in that order. As if I was that organized, yes. (laughs) And if you use the wrong quality of silence and of breaths leading into words, then you will break that illusion. The five sound designers in your audience will be like, that's not the way a normal person I'm telling you, it's very, very, it's impossible to tell. If they do it right, it's impossible to tell. They pay attention to everything, to every detail. And the point is to create an immersive storytelling experience. One of the things that that Jad talked about in my interview with him was the power of music and the power of sound Mm, mm -hmm. and how it is a direct emotional line to a person's experience and heart. And he was saying that he has gotten much more careful over the years about how he deploys that. It can be very manipulative. Right, and he doesn't want to be manipulative, but he wants to use that power And so he tries very hard not to misuse it. 
there's a chapter in Out on the Wire about sound, and the two big pieces of that are Radiolab and Snap Judgment. And the Snap mm-hmm. Judgment also does very heavy soundscaping, very detailed soundscaping. And so I actually run through the technical process of how do they design the sound for one particular little segment. Then I also had this interview with Jad and was talking about sound there. And um, so I do things like he's sitting in his studio and then I change the backdrop to the rangeland in the old west. Right, 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 right. And I'm trying to create visual metaphors for sound. Throughout the book I am. And it's really, it's one of the most challenging and most rewarding parts of doing the book. It's very effective. Every single person that I know in audio knows out on the wire, by the way. That's great to hear. (laughs) I'm very happy about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm really happy to have made something that I know is valuable to people. So to get back to the yeah, first yeah. part of what Jad was talking about, storytelling, that's why I did the book. The book is about, is called, the subtitle is The Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio. Mm-hmm. And the point is for me to extract all the things I can extract about what makes these producers' stories so powerful. What are the right. elements of storytelling that go into their work. And that's why it's also read by people who are not audio makers, because obviously I'm making a comic out of it, so it must work, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> across, the, across the board. Yes. But yeah, so that I know how interested Jad is in those core storytelling elements, developing character and telling the story in an order that's powerful and getting the right details and all those kinds of things. Right. I've got a great sequence with the Radiolab's senior producer, who is talking about my super reductive little formulas for storytelling, which, by the way, <laughs> super work, by the way, super work. But, <laughs> but he's pushing back. He's pushing back and saying that's not the magic. He came up with his own formula, which if I can do it off the top of my head, let me see if I can remember it. Um, this happens and then this happens. And then you wouldn't effing believe it, but this happens. <laughs> and the reason this matters to everybody walking the face of the earth is this. Storytelling formulas are cool as as long as they are presented in a way that people can like mess with them and make them their own. You know? Absolutely. I yeah. mean, I, for me, it's all constraint and a thinking tool. So I think it is time for the second of our two surprise clips. This video is from Brett Weinstein, a self-described professor in exile. And I haven't seen this clip, but I did look up Brett Weinstein before this. And apparently he's the guy that got, he's an evolutionary biologist and he got significant backlash at Evergreen College for not being crazy about the idea of a, like a day on campus when all whites should leave the campus, which was an idea that they had at Evergreen College. Um, So he pushed back against that and got kind of like, you are a racist backlash. But I don't think this clip has anything to do with that. It's called The Evolution of Religion, Why Belief Systems Are Literally False and Metaphorically True. Okay. We have minds that are programmed by culture that can be completely at odds with our genomes. And it leads to misunderstandings of evolution, like the idea that religious belief is a mind virus, that effectively these belief structures are parasitizing human beings and they are wasting the time and effort that uh, those human beings are spending on that endeavor rather than the more reasonable interpretation, which is that these belief systems have flourished because they have facilitated the interests of the creatures involved. Our belief systems are built around evolutionary success, and they certainly contain human benevolence, which is appropriate to phases of history when there is abundance and people can afford to be good to each other. The problem is if if you have grown up in a period in which 
abundance has been uh, the standard state, you don't anticipate the way people change in the face of austerity. And so what we are currently seeing is messages that we have all agreed are unacceptable re-emerging because the signals that we have reached the, the end of the boom times, those signals are everywhere. And so people are triggered to move into a phase that they don't even know that they have. Despite the fact that human beings think that they have escaped the evolutionary paradigm, they've done nothing of the kind. And so we should expect the belief systems that people hold to mirror the evolutionary interests that people have rather than to match our, uh, our best instincts when we are capable of being good to each other because there's abundance. We have those instincts and so it's not incorrect to say that human beings are capable um, of being marvelous creatures and being quite ethical. And I would argue there's a, a simple way of reconciling the correct understanding that religious belief often describes truths that in many cases fly in the face of what we can understand scientifically with the idea that these beliefs are adaptive. Um, I call it the state of being literally false and metaphorically true. A belief is literally false and metaphorically true if it is not factual, but if behaving as if it were factual results in an enhancement of one's fitness. To take an example, if one behaves in, let's say, the Christian tradition uh, in such a way as to gain access to heaven, one will not actually find themselves at the pearly gates being welcomed in, but one does tend to place their descendants in a good position with respect to the community that those descendants continue to live in. So if we were to think evolutionarily, the person who is behaving so as to get into heaven has genetic interests. Those genetic interests are represented in the narrow sense by their immediate descendants and close relatives. In the larger sense, they may be represented by the entire population of people uh, from whom that individual came. And by acting so as to get into heaven, the fitness of that person, the number of copies of those genes that continue to flourish in the aftermath of that person's death will go up. So the belief in heaven is literally false. There is no such place. But it is metaphorically true in the sense that it results in an increase in fitness. This is pretty dense, and this is going into somewhat unknown territory, maybe for both of us, but I think let's try it. <laughs> okay, let's try it. Let's see what we can <laughs> do with this. Let's not give up on the Kyber Pass of discussing this clip. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was really interesting, and I see the logic in it. And the audience should jump in on Twitter and everywhere else like if they're hearing this differently. My concern about the way evolutionary biology comes into mainstream thought a lot of times is that, you know, we get this thing where like the fact that something was evolutionarily adaptive at some, like we explain human behavior. Uh, why do heterosexual men do X, Y, and Z when they go to a bar? Like, okay, we can understand that in the context of some evolutionary moment in history where it was advantageous for them to do that. But then we import that into now and the world that we live in now has some of those same pressures, but we better be careful not to make the assumption this is the right thing for people to be doing because it was evolutionarily adaptive and that's why we do it. Right. I think that's actually what he's arguing against, that he's saying that religion is 
a tool by which we can counteract the negative effects of our biology reacting to adverse circumstances. So that when we are under pressure, various kinds of social, you know, financial, whatever kind of pressure, right. and not in a time of abundance, but in a time of scarcity, right. that our biological beings are likely to go crazy, do something wrong, do things badly, that are going to yeah. be bad for society and bad for our community. And, and what he's saying is basically bad for our descendants. Right. And so religion is a structure by which we can reinforce rules that allow us to function better as a community and as a society. See, what's interesting about that to me, though, is that religion emerges really, really early in the history of our species at a time where we're but not... But enforcing rules about the community. So, it, like, how do you treat people? How do you... No, but I, I'm saying it emerges out of kind of, like, animistic thinking about, like, oh, the, 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 you know, the mountain is a god or whatever, and then translates into moral responsibilities and sacrifices and whatever, and I'm thinking that... But I think those things go hand in hand. Like, you know, the same moment that you think this thing is magical, you think this thing is going to slap back on me if I don't behave in this particular kind of way. And this behavior pattern is something that is potentially, I, I don't know that, I mean, I don't know that I 100% buy this, but this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. I get the logic of that. And I've always seen the logic of that. I just didn't, he's connecting this, saying that it still has this utility today, as opposed to only having this utility historically. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it seems to me that religion itself is an evolutionary phenomenon, not just a conscious construct to organize society. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I mean, it, that, I think as, it, as much as mating behaviors or whatever, like that religion emerges at, out of the survival needs of the species. So thinking of it as like a separate thing that we're using to counteract biological impulses. I mean, okay, so I'm going to make yeah, yeah. an attempt to connect this to what we were talking to earlier. I'm just going to try here. Because I think that religious thinking comes out of our nature as uh, creative beings. Mm. And that we have we create stories, stories about the world, right? stories about our fictional st stories. You know, the, one of the things I've been reading a lot with my kids are, are myths. Mm. Right, right now reading a book of Norse myths. Oh, Neil Gaiman's book? Neil Gaiman's book, which is so good. He was on this show. We talked about it. It's such a good, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so energetic. I love it. It's and the great. kids are just, uh, yeah, they love it. But these, we talk about how these myths, that people believed this, that this, these are the stories they believed were true about the world. Right. But they have the same qualities of interesting characters and compelling plot lines and actions and consequences and all these different things that we write into novels now. You know, it's right. the same kind of stuff. And I think that the quality of wanting to sit there and wide-eyed around the fire listening to these amazing stories, right. we still have that feeling, whether it's a story that's fully religious or fully secular. I don't know whether creativity in terms of creating fiction and whatever other kinds of things we create now has any relationship to the kind of evolutionary fitness idea that he was talking about in the clip. It can. The stories we tell have an effect on your behavior. I, I, I mean, going back to what you were saying about Norse myths and creativity itself emerges out of this pattern-making mechanism in us that wants to understand and kind of fit things together. I mean, what's interesting is that that can result in stories that don't make any sense and don't have necessarily any utility value, like that that are just entertaining. And it can also result in something like a community or a state. I just thought of another connection here. So one of the people who appears prominently in, in Out on the Wire is Glenn Washington, yeah, yeah, the host Snap of Judge. Snap Judgment. And 
at one point, he has a long and checkered history of doing all kinds of different things, mostly having to do with policy. He ran for mayor of Oakland at one point. Mm. Like he has this very interesting history involved in social action and that kind of thing. And I said, well, how did you, why are you doing this now? Why did you go from that to storytelling? You know, why did you go from policy to storytelling? He said, policy is storytelling. (laughs) Whoever tells the best story wins. Right. That's one quote from him. But another thing that he was just adamant about and was like so core to his mission at Snap Judgment is that storytelling is about allowing people to walk in someone else's shoes. And in particular, people with whom they would not normally have any empathy. So for him, and this is not true of all storytellers, but for Snap and for for him, creating stories, propagating stories, thinking carefully about how you tell stories is about developing empathy for people who are not like you. This is why we read stories about non-powerful people in other countries suffering things. The reason those things are published, the reason we read them is to build a sense of empathy and community between us and individuals who are completely unlike us. I mean, I, I see a parallel there in a very secular sense of that this storytelling impulse is something that we can harness to help enforce ethical behavior from the inside. Certainly religion has the power to create this kind of buy-in to a sense of how the world is and how it should be. And right, but I think the religious in buy-in that he's talking about is based on rules, top-down rules, like you have to behave this way or you don't get this reward. Right. And I actually think that the only way to change anybody's mind about anything mm. is by creating empathy with them as person to person about, you know, do you understand my point of view, but also right. empathy with whoever is being affected. You know, I'm talking about political discussions. Like if you are talking to somebody who has ideas that are opposed to yours, the only way to get them to see your point of view is to understand what you see as the effects of what they're in favor of. Right, as opposed to like yelling at them. Right, like you're so wrong, you're so dumb, you're such a racist or whatever. It's like, it's not a... central symbol of Christianity, it's a guy suffering on a cross. That without question... I mean, and there are many religions, and and I don't, we don't have time to unpack how empathy functions in each of their. I would not dare, but I mean, stories, clearly, but, but empathy is playing a big role there, like in that story of Christ. You know? Believers I'm have not empathy. Christian, by the way, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not either, yeah. but like believers have empathy for Christ's suffering. Yeah, but Christ's suffering is actually is the ultimate simple symbol of empathy for us. Right. That he believes in us, well, right? Because the main I'm character, not a Christian, of, and main, I, you know, whatever. But it's like this is a really powerful image. But that's how empathy works too, because the main character of any story is you, even if it's somebody else. It's you. Like if you're feeling their pain, you're resonating with their pain. It's taking you out of yourself, but also back into yourself. You're feeling with them. So mm-hmm. then you're seeing the difference, but you're also feeling the common humanity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you're identifying with them. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and that's what I was saying about, you know, what Glenn Washington was saying is that, you know, you're walking in their shoes. That's right. the old cliche about it. But it's, you know, you understand their their subjective experience in such a way that you can't ever look at those things the same way. I, I'm reading right now, I've just started reading Kim Stanley Robinson's book, New York 2140 which is about the year 2140 after okay. New York is underwater. You know, a whole lot of New York is underwater and it centers on a, a bunch of characters who live in the MetLife building, which I walked past on my way here. And the entire entirety of lower Manhattan is underwater. Buildings are still there, people are living in them. And there's a whole sort of Venice-like okay. structure that's built up around this. But these buildings have very much, they're sort of little fortresses with all of, you know, trying to keep the water out. Mm. Um, but the water's up to the third floor 
on all the buildings. You know, and, right. and Kim Stanley Robinson is, he's a speculative fiction and writer who I love, and he is hard science 100% of the way. Right. He did his research on this. This is what will happen. Unless we do something radical now to stop this from happening, right. this is what 2140 is going to look like in New York. So I'm walking down the street <laughs> and I'm like, obviously not on the four, third floor. And I'm thinking I am 30 feet underwater right now. Yeah, yeah. I will never look at Madison Square Park the same way again. That's empathy. I think we're going to wrap it up there. <laughs> <laughs> um, with with this hideous, dystopian, yet absolutely true vision of but New York. But this no. is the thing. Yeah, it's yeah. not dystopian. <laughs> it's post-apocalyptic, but not dystopian. And that's why I'm reading it, because it's about looking at the human race and what are we going to do with this is going to happen. So what are we going to do with it? It's empathy for these people in the future who are figuring out a way to live within this new world and these new rules. Humans are creative and resilient, even if we can be very stupid about things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jessica Abel, thank you so much for coming today to think again. Thanks for having me. And what, like if people want to find out more about you, they should go to your website or what? The easiest way is just to go to my website, jessicaable.com. Thanks again. Thanks. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new to the show or if you've been lingering for a while uh, but you've never done it, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen. And full disclosure, um, like I said in the show, I have been working on a bunch of creative projects on the side, music, podcast ideas, short stories, really too many things all at once. And I've taken two of Jessica Abel's workshops, which have really helped me take a clear look at how exactly I'm using my time and what exactly it's possible to do within the time that I have. It's incredible to me the extent to which it is possible to deceive oneself about that and to think magically, as she put it. Uh, at any rate, we'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you can join us. And if you're enjoying the conversation and you want to join it in a uh, informal and more direct way, please find us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. See you next week. <laughs>